This morning we're beginning a brand new sermon series titled Hope in the Chaos. You see it in the banners on the screen there. We're emphasizing this idea of hope because humans are hope-driven beings. You might say that hope is the engine that runs our life. We just finished spring break a week or two ago. I wondered, did anybody in here travel over spring break? Anybody go anywhere? A few of you, our family stayed home, uh, but you know the, the most common questions from kids when you're traveling on spring break don't really change year to year. Are we there yet? How much longer is it going to be? Right? And all they can see is what's right in front of them. But parents know that on the other side of this 12-hour drive, there's something much better. There's hope. And all, all the kids can see is the mushy banana in the back seat and they're saying, when can I get out of this van? The parents are almost smelling that ocean water and feeling the sand between their toes. They're saying, there's hope we're going to get there. Hope, it changes even for kids and parents how they're in the car on the way to Florida. And we live in a world that's clamoring for hope, that's searching for hope everywhere. Our world's always asking, and we're asking, how could things get better? We go on first dates because of hope that things could get better in our romantic life. Sports fans drool over draft picks out of hope of a championship down the road. We invest billions of dollars in medical research in the hope that we could see a world without cancer. Every four years, we're gripped by election cycles based on a hope for a better future for our nation. You see, almost everything in our life is driven by hope that things could actually get better. And so maybe you came to church on Sunday expecting a message about hope. Maybe something about a, a living hope because Jesus is alive. That would be what you expected but maybe you also expected us to open up one of the Gospels and read from that, and you were a little bit surprised when Tammy read from Psalm 105. Now, that doesn't seem like the normal resurrection passage. Did the preacher forget this was Easter Sunday and he's supposed to talk about the resurrection? No, calm your fears. We didn't forget about that. If you're new with us, we've been moving through the book of Genesis for a little over a year. And we've now come to the last leg of the segment on Genesis where we get to the life of Joseph. And of all the Old Testament characters, Joseph gives us some of the clearest pointers to Jesus. You might call them shadows, shadows of Jesus. You know, when you see somebody's shadow, you learn a little bit about them, but you don't get a crystal clear picture. You imagine somebody's walking down a hallway and you're kind of around the corner and you see their shadow coming. You learn a little about them, but you don't learn a lot about them. You might get the sense, was it, is it a child or is it an adult? Is it someone that's a little shorter or someone that's a little taller? Is it someone that's a little bit thinner or a little bit heavier? You, you get a little bit of an idea, but you don't get a ton about them. What we're going to see today is that there are shadows of Jesus in the life of Joseph, where Joseph is pointing us ahead, and Psalm 105 spoke to that. It said, hey, here's how Jesus was sort of foreshadowed by Joseph, and you see this single unified plan of redemption in the whole Bible. From Psalm 105, and from any passage, you can open it up and see a pointer to Christ. So what I want to do this morning is, is show six shadows 
of Joseph to Jesus. And next week we'll pick up with Genesis 37 and we'll kind of go chapter by chapter as we normally do through Genesis. So, so this sermon will feel a little bit different perhaps to you. It's not going verse by verse through Psalm 105. It's, it's more of an overview of Joseph's life, seeing how Joseph foreshadows Christ and the hope that both Joseph experienced and Christ delivered and how that changes us. So look at these six shadows, and then we'll, we'll zoom in on a couple of things this really means for us on how there's real hope for today that changes our life. Well, let me get started with these six shadows of Jesus in the life of Joseph. And with any shadow, what you're going to see is it's a little bit fuzzy at the beginning, and when the real thing arrives, you see it more clearly. Here, here's the first shadow of Jesus in Joseph. Joseph was the beloved son. If you're not familiar with this story, Joseph received this special coat from his father. If you were a, grew up in Sunday school at all, you'd remember the coat of many colors. Maybe it was a coat of many colors, maybe it wasn't. But it was a special coat because Joseph was the beloved son. And the father sent Joseph to talk to his brothers. His brothers were supposed to listen to him. If you fast forward to Jesus, you see in far more clarity at Jesus baptism. He, he's baptized. The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the whole world should listen to him, not just his brothers, as it was with Joseph. Here's the second shadow. Joseph was rejected and betrayed by those closest to him. Early in Joseph's life, he had some dreams that his brothers would bow down to him. And you know, I don't know about you, but if my brother had a dream and told me that I was going to bow down to him, I probably wouldn't like him very much, and things haven't changed that much. Joseph's brothers didn't like him saying that either. In fact, they hated him. They laughed at his claims. And a little while later, they would actually sell him as a slave to Midianite traders going to Egypt. You see an idea of what would happen in Jesus there. Jesus would come around, and his own family would think he was actually crazy, like, not just they rejected him, they thought he had lost his mind. This afternoon, you might look up Mark 3.21, where his family said, he is actually out of his mind. His family rejected him, just as Joseph's family rejected him. And then Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, would sell him into slavery. And his close, one of his closest friends, closest disciples, Peter, would deny vehemently that he even knew him. There's a shadow of Joseph being seen in Jesus. And yet in both of these situations, God was fully in control. Acts 2.23 says that what happened to Jesus was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And in Psalm 105, we see that, G that God was entirely in control of Joseph's life as well. If you've got it open, look back at verse 17. You see God's clear direction here. Verse 17, God had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. That even in the darkest point in Jesus' life, in the darkest point of Joseph's life, we see God was not removed from the situation. He was still active and he was still working. Let me give you a third shadow of Jesus in Joseph. Joseph resisted temptation. We read in Genesis 39 that Joseph was in his boss's house doing work, and his boss's wife came to him and tried to seduce him. And he fled from the scene. He said, no, I'm going to resist the temptation. How could I do this wicked thing? 
And Joseph wasn't perfect by any stretch. He was a, a man, a human like the rest of us. But we get a picture in Joseph of a man of integrity who was to be emulated. Yet Jesus' temptation was far more significant and far more difficult than Joseph's. Because Jesus has been without food in the wilderness. You may remember in Matthew chapter 4 that the devil leads him out into the wilderness to tempt him. He's been there for 40 days without food. And Satan says, hey, here's a rock. You're the son of God. You can turn this into bread. I say, you've been 40 days without any food at all? A little bit of bread sounds awfully good, doesn't it? But the way of getting it wasn't God's way. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. Jesus resisted a far greater temptation. He wasn't merely a pretty good guy with integrity. He was the perfect son of God. And so what you saw in a fuzzy way with Joseph, you see in a clarified 4K way with Jesus. Let me give you a fourth shadow. Joseph was falsely accused. He was falsely accused. After resisting these overtures from the woman I just referenced in Genesis 39, she falsely brought accusations against him to her boss. And it actually cost Joseph his job. He was thrown in prison for 13 years, wrongfully accused. Imagine in your life right now, fast-forwarding 13 years from where you presently are, in prison the entire time because of a false accusation. And yet Jesus' false accusations actually had a far greater consequence. We know he was falsely accused by the religious leaders. This resulted in his extreme torture and his gruesome death. Again, what we saw a little bit fuzzy in Joseph's life, we see clarifying in the life of Jesus. And we move to these last two shadows, five and six. They are the most significant. And we start to get in these two to the heart of the message of Easter, the resurrection of Jesus. Here's the fifth one. Joseph's suffering brought salvation. Joseph's suffering brought salvation. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, let me give you a little bit of back context. What happened is Joseph was sold as a slave. He was carried off to Egypt. And while Joseph was in Egypt... His family was not yet there, and a famine fell on the land, and they could not find food anywhere. They were going to die. But there was only one place in the known world where food could be had, and it was in Egypt, where Joseph was. And although he had suffered immensely in being carried off to Egypt and shipped into prison some 20-plus years without his family, 13 of which were in prison, were it not for his suffering, his family would have died. We get that foreshadow, and then we look ahead to Jesus, that his suffering brought him to the cross of Calvary to pay for our sin. Friends, without Jesus suffering on the cross, without what we talked about on Good Friday, we, like Joseph's family, would die in our sins had he not gone ahead and made provision and found a way to pay the penalty for sin, that a relationship with God could be restored. I wouldn't begin to assume that on an Easter Sunday with this many people in one room that everyone knows Jesus as their Savior here. Friends, it's important you understand that every human being has two core identities. On the one hand, you're made in the image of God. Every single human being in all the world is. It means you have immense 
ways of reflecting God in your intellect, in your will, in your emotions, in your creativity. Every human being. But at the same time, we're not merely made in the image of God. Every human being is also a sinner. It means we've done things wrong. We've not only had wrong actions, wrong words, wrong thoughts, wrong motives. All of it. And that sin, the Bible says, separates us from God. It says that God is holy. He's morally perfect and pure and can have no sin in his presence. And so because every sinner or every human is a sinner... We're separated from God. The question the Bible is answering for a very long time is, how can sinful man live with holy God? How can that happen? And I think it's common for us to think, well, I know that all humans are kind of sinners, but I mean, I'm not that bad, right? I certainly know others who are worse off than me. Justin, I'm at church on Easter Sunday. Can't be that bad, can I? Maybe think about it this way, to get an idea of how bad our sin is and how much a little sin in your life, even a little bit, makes it impossible for you to be with God. Imagine a friend invites you over and they want you to try this premium coffee they've just purchased. There's some mountainous region in some other part of the country that's supposed to have the best coffee in the world. Do you recognize, by the way, every other country seems to say that? Well, it's Nicaraguan coffee, it's Costa Rican coffee, it's Papua New Guinea coffee, it's South African coffee. I don't know where the best stuff is, but imagine they have it. And they invite you over and they say, yeah, try this. And you usually put tons of creamer in your coffee, but I'll even try it black today just to see what the real stuff tastes like. And the friend says, hey, by the way, just so you should know on the front end, no big deal. There's only one to two drops of COVID that I've dropped in there for you. It's 99.9% pure, best coffee in the world. There's just a little bit of COVID I've dropped in there. You're gonna say, no, I can't drink that. Are you crazy, man? Well, it's really, it's the best stuff. And there's hardly any of this germ disease in it. I can't go near it, right? Friends, that's how our sin is in separating us from God. Just as you wouldn't go near that coffee, God says, your sin separates you from me. I cannot be with you because of that. And that's why it's so significant that Jesus in his suffering would bring salvation. He would come to this earth and live the perfect life that none of us lived. And he would die on the cross, the death that our sins deserved, so that we could have our sins forgiven and be made right with God. That's why Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 would say, for the wages of sin is death. The payment for our sin is death, separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's only one way to know God. There's only one way to have eternal life. It's through the salvation that's brought by Jesus Christ. And it's brought because of his suffering on the cross. We see a fuzzy picture of in Joseph and a clear picture in Jesus. Here we come to the sixth and final shadow of Joseph or rather, of Jesus in Joseph. Joseph had a pseudo-resurrection. It wasn't a real re- resurrection, of course. It was a pseudo-one, but it points us ahead. And, and here's what we mean by that. When Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, they were out in the field, they sent him off on his way, they, they came to a dilemma. What are we going to tell mom and dad about this situation? The beloved son is just missing all of a sudden. So they took his coat, and they dipped it in blood, 
And they said to his parents, we're so sorry, a wild animal devoured him, and it's a terrible day in our family. Joseph's parents thought he was dead. And for more than 20 years, they lived believing he was dead. Until this famine hit, and the family went to Egypt. And they met Joseph and found he was alive. And so to Joseph's parents, it seemed like he had been brought back from the dead. Because they'd lived 20 years, more than two decades, thinking he was dead. It wasn't a real resurrection. Of course, he never died. That's why I called it a pseudo-resurrection. But Jesus really did die, unlike Joseph in this situation. And unlike Joseph, he really did rise. So his resurrection is better because it's a real one. And what we understand then is that Easter hope, resurrection hope, it's not about Jesus as some sort of a self-improvement plan. Jesus isn't here to help you be the best version of yourself. Easter isn't here to say, here's what God can do for you. No, the living hope of Easter is about your sins being forgiven, that death is defeated, and that eternity with God is secure. Amen? And this shadow is by far the most significant one that we must zoom in on. It brings us to the heart of Easter. Because here's the fact of the matter, guys. If Jesus were to stay dead, if he were to stay in that tomb, we would absolutely be wasting our time here today. Be a waste of time. Pastor Casey read from 1 Corinthians 15 a minute ago. The Bible is so clear on this. It says that if Jesus stayed dead, then Christianity is a sham. It's a joke. It's a hoax. It's another in a long line of man-made religions that are poor self-help tools if he stayed dead. But he didn't. But he didn't. And the best historical evidence we have points to the reality of his life, his death on the cross, and him really rising from the dead. There are numerous eyewitnesses who saw him rise from the dead and were willing to die for saying he rose from the dead. You don't die for something that you saw unless it really happened. And beyond that, you might say, well, they just they, they liked the guy. They were his disciples. They wanted to follow him and keep the idea going. Well, we also had multiple skeptics who hated God, who killed Christians, who saw Jesus resurrected and were converted immediately. They said, I thought it was another one of those man-made religions. I thought it was fake. I thought it was a joke. And then I saw him die, and then I saw him alive. And dead men stay dead. But he's God, and they're converted on the spot. And as if that wasn't enough, we have immense archaeological and manuscript evidence that speaks to the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. I understand it's not a full-fledged defense of his resurrection. And if you've got questions, I'd love to talk to you this week or even this afternoon, even right after the service. Stop by. Let's, let's chat on that. But know, know this, that if he didn't rise from the dead, then it's a waste of time. But he did. Know that well. And know that means there is great hope for us. And because he rose from the dead, because he did, it validated his claims to be God. The scriptures had prophesied it. He himself had predicted it. And when he rose from the dead, it validated his claims to be God. And because he really died on a real cross and was really buried in a real tomb and was really raised with a real body 
and was really seen by real people, then you really must decide if you are going to follow him or not. It has real implications and real consequences for your life. And so having given a, a sketch of these shadows from Joseph to Jesus, what I want to do with our remaining minutes is zoom in on a couple of realities that you must grapple with because Jesus really rose from the dead. Here's what Easter means for you because it really happened and all the scriptures testify it. Number one, here's what Easter means for you. It means that eternity is real. Eternity is real. You know, people have all sorts of theories about what happens to them when they die. Some believe in a version of reincarnation. Some would say nothing happens. You just go six feet under and start pushing up daisies. Various religions have ideas about heaven and hell. But in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 11, we read that God has put eternity into man's heart. What does that mean? It means that deep down, all of us know that there's more than just this life, that we're made for something more. I recently read about Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple and the iPhone and all of that, that somebody asked him near the end of his life if he believed in God. And he said, well, the longer I live, the closer I get to death, the more I start to believe in a God. And the interviewer said, well, that's interesting. Why is that? And here's what Steve Jobs said. We have it on the screen. He said, I just can't accept that the body just turns off one day and then it's all over. You're gone forever. And then one day the sun of our solar system goes out and that's the end of human history. There's got to be more to it than that. We can't just be an illusion of consciousness arising from a fortuitous cosmic accident. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying he has eternity written on his heart. Not a Christian, doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of the world, but he says, deep down, I know there has to be more to it than this. You don't just turn off and stop existing. Eternity is real. And believe it or not, Steve Jobs would actually go on to say that that was why he never wanted to have on-off switches on Apple products. Because it would start to communicate this idea that you can just turn yourself on or off and just die and there's nothing left there. He says, eternity is written in our hearts and our Apple products testify to it. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. I mean, you really can't. Except that maybe there is a real God who really created the world and really revealed himself in the world and really sent his son who really died on a cross to rise from the dead so that we would know that eternity is real and there's hope of heaven. The question that remains then is not if eternity is real. It's not even if Apple is better than Android. That's settled as well. <laughs> the question is how are you going to respond to Jesus? That's the question. Because how you respond to him determines how you will spend eternity, whether in heaven or in hell. Look, I understand there's all sorts of reasons that people delay in answering this question. You may have theological questions. I want to figure out how this Trinity thing works. The three in one, the one in three. And let's talk about that before I figure out who Jesus is. Or something else in your life feels more urgent and more pressing. You want to get that next job promotion where you get a little more financial stability or you're really focused on starting a family and raising the kids. Different things seem 
more important right now. Maybe you've been hurt by the church and you've seen hypocrisy all over it. And Justin, I can't really think about this Jesus character yet because the wounds are so deep over here. Look, each of those situations I described, these can be really tough. I understand that. But what you need to know is that on Easter Sunday, the reality of Jesus rising from the dead means that his existence and his claims for deity himself are the most important thing that you can ever deal with in your life. You must start there. Well, let me explain it like this. I was in college running a basketball camp. I traveled two summers in Cumber two summers in college doing these basketball camps. And one of them, we were uh, doing a camp in Tampa, Florida. And so uh, I'd never been to Tampa before, wanted to get out and see the city a little bit. I like going to baseball stadiums, so I wanted to go see the Tampa Rays play. And so in the evening, we borrowed a friend's car, me and uh, one other friend, and we were going to go out to this restaurant we'd heard about, go to the baseball game, have a great time. So we're driving around in Tampa, middle of July, and um, trying to figure out these roads I'm not familiar with, and I, I go to kind of accelerate on the highway, and I hit the gas, and I get nothing. I go, oh man, this is not good. I'm in my friend's car, and things breaking down. What am I going to do? I don't know anybody down here. And I look down. The car wasn't breaking down. It's just out of gas. <laughs> and I've been so focused on all these other fun things we were going to be doing. I've been so focused on the restaurant we are going to go to, I was so focused on going to this baseball game, seeing the city, and I'd forgot the most important thing, to get gas in the car. Friend, that may be you with Jesus this morning. You focus on all kinds of good, important, and fun things, and you've forgotten the most important one. And you might look at me and say, Justin, how could, you, how could you be so foolish to forget to put gas in the car? If you feel that way, it's a fair question. I ask it of myself. I don't understand how I forgot to do that. But I'll tell you this. When death comes, and it does come for everyone, if you have failed to answer this question about Jesus, you will look at yourself just like I looked at myself and forgetting to put the gas in the car and say, how could I be so foolish? Except this time, there's no hope to go get gas. It'll be too late. Friends, eternity is real. And the Bible is really clear in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Man, if you're here this morning and you've not made that decision, there's no better way to celebrate Easter 2023 than to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you can and will be saved. If you've got questions on that, I'd love to chat with you after. Maybe you're right now, you're praying that prayer as I speak. And man, I hope after the service, you'll talk to us. We'd love to baptize you next Sunday because that's the first step in following Jesus. Maybe you've been saved for a little while and you've never followed Jesus in believer's baptism. So Justin, we've got to take care of that. That's the first step in following Jesus. But because eternity is real, we must recognize who Jesus is and respond to him. But there's something else, the second thing that Easter means for you. Not just that eternity is real, but secondly, that the chaos is temporary. Sermon series is titled Hope in the Chaos. Life can feel chaotic at times. And maybe you're here as a Christian, and you've confessed Jesus as Lord. You've believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You have the hope of heaven, and it's secure. 
But you look around and there's still chaos all over your life. You're asking, Justin, how does this hope of heaven transform the chaos that I'm in right now? It might be unshakable anxiety that just grips you. Maybe you look out and the cultural upheaval is more than you can bear. Maybe there are painful relationships in your life. It seems like there's no hope for them to get any better. Maybe there are loved ones with diseases that seem incurable or are incurable. Maybe the chaos is the loved ones who aren't going to join you for Easter lunch today. Maybe they're financial stressors that just feel so chaotic that you can't even get your head above the water. You're just drowning. Friends, what the resurrection of Jesus Christ does, it provides hope in the chaos. It allows us to embrace a couple of realities at the same time. On the one hand, here's the first reality, it allows you to acknowledge the chaos is real. You don't have to deny it. You don't have to pretend like it's not that difficult. You don't have to say, oh, we're all okay here. No, it's okay to not be okay. In fact, what the resurrection does, coming off of Good Friday, it says the chaos is so bad, so turbulent, the suffering, the brokenness of this world because of sin is so bad that God himself in Jesus had to come down and die. You can acknowledge the chaos. You don't have to pretend like it's not there. But the second reality, on the other side of the coin, is the chaos doesn't have to be crushing because it's going to end. Yes, it's really bad, but you can keep going because it's temporary. It's going to get better. It's not going to be this way forever. One of my mentors would always say, God never wastes the tears of his saints. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 would say he's sorrowful, sorrowful, acknowledge the chaos, but always rejoicing. Both realities at the exact same time. Friends, to know that the chaos is temporary allows you to persevere, to keep going even when you think you can't. If, if I can give sort of a, a silly and, and mundane example, yesterday, it was a beautiful day, we were out pulling weeds, and we were pulling weeds in the back for an hour or two, and near the end, I realized my bucket was full, and I had to go dump it, and I, I, was, I was bent over, and I stood up, and my back just screamed bloody murder at me. Like, the thing was just kind of hurting this morning, actually. I had to take some ibuprofen. And I went, I dumped the bucket of weeds and I came back and the last thing in the world I wanted to do was go pull more weeds. But the section wasn't done and I looked at it and we probably had like 20 minutes to go. And I realized we've only got 20 minutes here and then it'll be done. And I can sit down and I can look at this beautiful area with the weeds pulled, with the flowers blooming, the fresh mulch on it, and it will be wonderful. Had we looked out and there was another hundred acres worth of weeds to pull, or even an acre, or even a half an acre, it would not have felt temporary. I said, I can't do it. I'm done. I have to stop. I can't keep going. But to know that the pain in my back was very temporary allowed me to persevere and keep going. Now look, I understand that there's a lot of people here with severe chaos in their life. And I don't mean to minimize any of that for a second with sort of a, a petty example from a little bit of low back pain. I, I, don't, I don't mean to do that at all. 
But friend, can I ask you, do you face the chaos and the suffering in your life with the view that it is temporary and Jesus is coming back and in eternity he will make all things new? Do you see it that way? Do you, do you live, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 6, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing because there's always hope? Boy, for some of you here, you may not be here as a Christian, and you need to understand that if you've not responded to Jesus, like I just talked about, the chaos in your life is not temporary. In fact, right now, however bad it seems, it's only going to get worse in eternity. So if it feels bad now, Recognize today is the day of salvation. Respond to Christ. But to those of you who are Christians, I want to challenge you. I want to exhort you to declare war on your thoughts where it feels like you can't keep going, like the difficulty is paralyzing. Maybe you remember being as a kid. You had the thumb wars, right? One, two, three, four, I declare a thumb war. Maybe you just use that little trick and remember, I'm not going to say one, two, three, four, I declare a thumb war, but one, two, three, four, I declare a thought war. I'm going to declare war on these thoughts. And I'm going to remember that on the cross, Jesus didn't say, I am finished. He didn't say that. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. My work in destroying sin, and I'm just getting started. He wasn't done. He's not done in your life. He's not done in this world. And you remember that. He's at work. And we zoom ahead to the end of the Bible and we get the, the story complete and it's on the screen. Revelation chapter 21, verses four through six. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. That's what we have to look forward to. And Jesus said, write these things down because we're so prone to forget them. We're prone to forget that the chaos is temporary and there's a guarantee that he will make all things new. And even in verse six that it's done, I've made them new. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that the chaos is temporary. Here's third and final thing. The resurrection, what Easter means for you, it means that hope is certain. Hope is certain. On the surface, that phrase may feel like a bit of a contradiction in terms to you. Because our modern world defines hope in a way that requires uncertainty, the exact opposite of certainty. We say, I hope to get into that school. I'm not certain of it. I hope to find a spouse. I'm not certain of it. I hope to have kids, or I hope to get cured of this disease, but all of those are not certain things. In a sense, our modern world uses the word hope as a verb. We're hoping for the best. But biblically, hope is not a verb, but a noun. It's something you possess, not something you strive for. Biblical hope is a life-shaping certainty. It's something you possess. That's why in Ephesians 1, Paul would pray for the believers that they would know the hope that they have. He says, it's real, and you possess it. It's a life-shaping certainty. And he says, I pray that you'll know it. Because if you know it, 
what you already possess, it will shape your life. The reality is this, because human beings are hope-driven beings, hope of the future is what drives our current situation. I heard this week about a, uh, a man named Viktor Frankl. Maybe you've heard of him. He was a uh, Jewish psychologist that lived during World War II. He was actually imprisoned uh, in the, Jew- the German concentration camps for a while. He was actually at Auschwitz. He had a friend while at Auschwitz who had a very vivid dream one night that World War II was going to end on a particular day about a year out. And as all of their friends and acquaintances in the concentration camp deteriorated and died, this friend who had hope in his dream that the war would end got stronger. He was subjected to the same diseases. He received the same poor nutrients. He had to do the same back-breaking labor. And yet, he got stronger because he believed in the vision he saw that the war was going to end on that day. However, as the day got closer, it became apparent the war wasn't going to end on that day. And two days before the supposed end of the war, this friend developed a severe fever. And one day before the war was supposed to end, he lost consciousness. And one day after the war was supposed to end, when it didn't end, he died. He had hope for a while, but it wasn't certain. You see, it's a a tragic story, but it really drives home the point that we are hope-driven creatures. And the certainty of future hope drives how we live right now. It's like President Snow in the Hunger Games would say, hope is the only thing that's stronger than fear. You know, in America, we don't hope for wars to end, maybe like Viktor Frankl would have. We have other sources of hope that are equally uncertain. We hope for a better job, upward mobility. We hope for the next vacation, that it'll deliver on all of its promises. Each of these hopes change how we live, don't they? They change what we're willing to make sacrifices for and invest in. But these sources of hope also are not certain. They're delightful, but insecure. And because Jesus rose from the dead, it means that hope of eternity with him is now secure. In fact, it's the only certain hope that we could ever find. We started out this morning talking about spring break and and kids travel, kids not possessing hope in the backseat of the car, wondering when can we get out of here? That's why they grumble and complain. It's why patiently waiting isn't on their radar why they need more gummy bears, or at least that's what they tell us. The hope of where they're going isn't driving them. They just see their present. Christian, can I ask you, is the hope of eternity driving how you live in the present? Does it drive your conversation topics? Does it calm your anxious soul? 
Does it anchor you when the criticism, either from without or from within, is loud? The resurrection of Jesus, celebrated at Easter, means that hope is secure. It's a life-shaping certainty. And it's certain because Jesus is alive. He is our living hope. And the certainty of this living hope changes everything. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the certainty of hope, the life-shaping certainty that you have given through your resurrection from the dead. We thank you that you would love us enough to go to the cross. We thank you that you are powerful enough to overcome death and that you promise life beyond the grave, that eternity is real. Lord, we ask that you would help us to live in light of that hope, Help us not to live like eight-year-old kids driving on vacation, forgetting what's coming next. But may the certainty of the hope of what's coming drive us and ground us and guide us and change us. Lord, I pray for those who don't yet know you. They've heard about you. They know facts about you but they have not yet submitted their life to you. We pray this morning that, Holy Spirit, you would work and move them to follow you, to trust in you, Jesus, as the payment for their sins. They would have a right relationship with you and the eternal hope of heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.